The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everyone. It's Tuesday, July 8th, and we are back. I'm your host, Vince Rocco, and you're listening to Good Morning New York here on the Voice America Network. Get ready for the Hamptons just coming off of a long holiday weekend. Everybody has, you know, um, out-of-town thoughts. But we're going to talk all about the infamous playground of the rich and the famous as it remains the hotbed of social entertainment and status. For those out there who aren't familiar with this region, the Hamptons are a group of villages and hamlets in the towns of Southampton and East Hampton, which form the South Fork of Long Island. The Hamptons towns are a populous seaside resort one of the historical summer colonies of the American Northeast, and are known around the globe. As I mentioned last week, the Hampton summer season is officially underway, and this year the rental market, in addition to the sales market, has skyrocketed. East End pleasure seekers this year have become acquainted with new hotspots born during the off-season, from upscale apparel pop-up shops to new restaurants to trendy uh, hotels and hangouts. While attention directed at the Hamptons real estate typically focuses on the glamorous properties changing hands on the South Fork, there has been an increase in activity on the North Fork where buyers are seeking more for their money. While the number of home sales jumped 38% earlier this year on the South Fork, they skyrocketed 60% on the North Fork, considered a non-Hamptons market area or marketplace. Today, the entire East End is experiencing an incredibly uh, active market, and we haven't seen this robust a market since before the financial crisis in 2008. The Hamptons are back. Joining me today is a very successful Hamptons real estate agent. Brian Midlam has over a decade of experience selling real estate in the Hamptons. He is one of the East End's top producing brokers for many years. He ranks among the top five agents in the Hamptons and top 35 in his company. Brian works for Corcoran Group Real Estate. It's my pleasure to welcome Brian Midlam to the program this morning. Hey, Brian, Thanks. good morning. Thanks for having me, Vince. How, how have you been? Been great. Been great. Really enjoying the season. You know, things actually quiet down a little bit for us for a couple of weeks now. So been enjoying catching up and sort of enjoying what everybody else does, going to the beach here and there. I hear you. So listen, before we get into the, the, the actual market and what's going on out east, tell us a little bit about your background, you know, where you're from and where you went to school and how did you end up in the Hamptons? Sure. Um, I actually grew up in a small town in upstate New York. Uh, It's called Oneida, east of Syracuse, right about in the middle of the state. And I went to school at SUNY Geneseo, which is Mm -hmm. near Rochester. And I was in my senior year and business degree. I was kind of ready to go do a marketing thing somewhere. And serendipitously, I got this email from an element broker who was looking for an intern. And I didn't know where the Hamptons were. Um, having grown up upstate, I, I had maybe been to New York once in my life, 
New York City. And um, I got this email, you know, come check it out. So I figured, uh, you know what, I thought growing up real estate is, you know, it's a second career. People tend to be in their 60s and 50s. Maybe this isn't for me, but I checked it out, and it sounded intriguing enough to me. So I interviewed with him. I got the position and ended up, uh, the day I graduated, actually ended up down here and moved into a house. And I got a little restaurant job to support myself, and it kind of started from there. So right out of school, I mean, you, you took the chance. You came to a, a foreign place, which is obviously a paradise, yeah. uh, and you decided to just start. So you worked as an intern uh, at Element for, for a little bit of time, and then you went into your own practice because I think I met you years ago uh, as an Element broker, and you had already right. – started on the road to um, you know, success. So let me ask you something. What is it about the Hamptons that was so captivating for you, I guess, once you got there and realized what you pretty much stepped into? What right. was so captivating about it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, had no, I didn't even know where it was. So when I got here, it was sort of a shock to say, wow, like, I always had this impression of Long Island, you know, growing up and going to school with kids from Long Island. And and I came out here, and I was just like, holy cow, it's a lot like where I grew up in a way that it's very bucolic and beautiful, and there's farm fields, but it has, you know, some of the best beaches in the world. And as I got to know it better and better, I, you know, I sort of started to learn learn the little secrets of, you know, the little biking, mountain biking trails and the hiking trails and the different beaches that you can kind of go to that you have all to yourself. And it's just, it's it's hard to match the beauty of this place within, you know, 100 miles of New York. There's just nothing else I know of that has so many things in one with culture, you know, scenery, beaches, shops, restaurants, everything all in one spot. Yeah, I feel the same way. It's kind of like I I can't necessarily describe it, and I've been out, you know, back and forth, summering and whatever for many years, and I've always said the same thing. It's just one of those places that when you're there, you know you're there, you feel it, when you leave, you know you just left something that's very special in the world. The Hamptons, you know, whether it's East Hampton, South, Sag Harbor, it's a very special place. And again, I can't necessarily put my finger on it, but it's everything right. that you described. I also grew up fairly similar uh, upstate, you know, in a very bucolic and country-like setting. So for me, when I see Rolling Hills, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And, of course, the, the benefit of all of it is, is the most spectacular ocean. So, you know, let's discuss the market. You know, from the financial crisis of 2008 until today, you know, the Hamptons kind of sat back for a while and, you know, I like to say just kind of looked at the rest of the world and wondered, you know, when is it our time to come back? What is going on right now? Why is the market so strong? You know, I've been doing this for about 10 years and I've always tried to kind of track the market as much as possible. And I feel like we've always been about six to 12 months behind the Manhattan market. And, mm-hmm. you know, last year was our best year ever, my team, best year we've ever had. And I think it's just a, a really solid combination of interest rates remaining low, uh, a general feeling of confidence among New Yorkers who, you know, we all weathered this awful financial time and we all got through it or most of us got through it. And the confidence is back and people want to feel like they can, they can celebrate again in a way and invest their money in something that they can use. And I always say to some of my stockbroker guys who talk in very, you know, percentages, you, you, you can't live in your stocks. You know, you can't jump in the pool in your stocks. So, right. you know, people with money to invest, it's a great place to put X amount of money because you can rent it out when you're not using it, et cetera. So 
between the stock market coming back, you know, in addition to the interest rates and, and this this general feeling of confidence, I think it all came together as just, you know, this is a good time to come out here. And I think the final thing, honestly, that's pushed people is the Manhattan market because the Manhattan market is difficult to get into right now. I mean, from what I understand, it's not easy just to go say, hey, I want to buy this. You're competing with a number of people. Yeah. So I'm finding a lot of my buyers are saying, listen, I'm not ready to buy in the city because of the the environment there. It's just too it's too difficult for me to get what I want. I'm going to continue to rent there and buy in the Hamptons. And through my whole career, I've had a lot of buyers that took that tactic. It's interesting because you're right on the money there. You know, here in Manhattan, we have gone, we've softened just a little bit the past month or two, but we've gone through a very long period of time where, you know, multiple bidding wars, prices going way over asking price. And we, I think what we're seeing here now is exactly what you described. People are, buyers rather, are kind of sitting back saying, hey, I need this frenzy to stop a little bit, slow down just a little bit before I continue. I'm a little nervous with all this craziness. And I don't necessarily want to spend more than I should for for an apartment. So my question is, are most of your sales out there today, I guess, you know, since your recovery has, has begun, are they still second homes? Are they still, you know, vacation homes? Or are there people moving out there and making the Hamptons uh, their full-time residence? I mean, clearly with yeah. people able to work from home, you know, that makes it easier to live anywhere. You know, over the past few years, I've noticed more and more people making the transition, but I would still say 90% of my sales are second home. Um, within the 10%, half of those are people who already live here and are moving to another primary. So it's a very small percentage, for me at least, of people moving out here full-time. I do get a fair amount of people who are starting the transition, so they have New York and the Hamptons, and they're maybe 50-50, mm-hmm. or New York and Florida and the Hamptons. Um, but I, I don't have very many people yet who have made the the 100% leap out here. Do you have any, any statistics on, on the, the Miami marketplace or the South Florida marketplace versus the Hamptons? Because obviously uh, we being in real estate have seen a resurgence in sales and in rentals in, the, in that district, which was completely flattened with the crisis of 2008. Now all of a sudden – they seem to be screaming back. Are there any statistics like where people would prefer to to um, invest in in a, in a second home? Is it is it the Hamptons over Miami, or is it Miami over the Hamptons? Do we even know that? I, you know, I'm not really sure. I don't get a lot of cross action between the Hamptons and Miami. More so, you know, Palm Beach, right. uh, Fort Lauderdale. People, you know, will come to me and say, "Hey, we're looking here and in Palm Beach," but. I, I've only had one person ever that said they're also looking in Miami. So I'm not, I haven't followed that market too closely. I do know that they're having a huge resurgence and it's, it's very hot again. But as far as statistics, I really don't have uh, any info. Yeah, I, I, I don't myself either for that marketplace, but that's something that I'm interested in exploring. You know, I, in, in, in my research, some home sales have really shattered records, especially in the past 12 months. For example, is it true that Hedge funder Scott Bomber went into contract on the purchase of three oceanfront properties on Lily Pond. I mean, Lily Pond is, you know, the most magical place in the world. But for $93.9 million, how is this possible, Brian? Uh, you know, uh, from from what I know, he bought something in Southampton, um, quickly put it back on the market and bought these three properties. I don't have too much insider info on it. 
But, you know, three contiguous properties on one of the best streets probably in the country. Um, you know, I think a few years from now, ironically, I think people will think he got a good deal. Uh, I think you're right. And then there's the Chris Brown, the former, uh, his former estate on Further Lane, cashed in at $147 million. Now, I've been to parties on that property in, in that estate, $147 million. So my question is, where do we stop? I mean, where do we stop? I mean, I don't know if, it, if, if you do, I, I, but, but there's only so many Chris Brown caliber properties. Right. I mean, you, you've been there. That property is pretty hard to compare. I mean, I would say there's a very small handful of properties out here that have what that has. Mm. And, you know, in, in a way, you, there's no way to set a price for something like that. No, you're right. And it, it's a very special and a very unique place. And what he's done, what he did to it, you know, through the years was just uh, even more special. But I just find some of these prices so incredibly um, crazy. But then, you know, I look at the Manhattan marketplace where I, you know, play every day. And I see prices of one bedrooms at a million four, a million four fifty, a million five. And, you know, people say to me, well, so this is a one bedroom apartment. How, you know, so what is the price of a two bedroom? And I'm saying, you know, it's like one seven, one eight, two million. I mean, this is what goes on today. And when I started in this business 13 years ago, you know, I remember selling one bedrooms for $299,000. Right. <laughs> Right. It's kind of like, you know, yeah. 13 years ago is not a long time ago, you know? No, and even when I was newer in the business, I remember when Dolly Lenz was, had sold a property out here, I think it was called Burnt Point, and that sold for 45 and sure. that was just the hugest news. And here we are, you know, let's say eight, eight years later, and we're tripling that number, almost, you know, more than tripling that number. We are. All right, listen, we have to take a break. We will be right back. But first, you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay with us. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. 
or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we're back, everybody. I'm talking to Brian Midlam from uh, Corcoran Real Estate out in the Hamptons, superstar broker uh, in all of the Hamptons. Yeah, you know, Brian, you know, I think I mentioned at the top of the show that the South Fork has grown significantly uh, this year, but the North Fork, you know, has skyrocketed like 60% uh, in sales. Why is the North Fork all of a sudden exploding uh, more so than, than the South Fork? Is it really people want more for their money or is it a nicer area? What's going on up there? I, I always think of the North Fork in a way like maybe like Brooklyn where, um, you know, at least – you used to get a lot more for your money. So it's a very beautiful area, a lot of vineyards and farms and everything. You don't have the ocean, so you have the bay and the sound, which, you know, is, is the different, the major difference. And it's not as developed. You won't have quite as many, you know, shops and restaurants, things like that. But there's a lot of people who want sort of a, a quieter vacation, and you can get a lot more for your money. So, you know, you have plenty of people who want just the solitude and for for. 600 grand, let's say, you can get an extra bedroom and an extra quarter acre and maybe a view or something. You know, that's hypothetical, but you just get a lot more for your money, and I think that's important to some people. You know, I agree. So, you know, here in Manhattan, we've seen a little bit of a slowdown, as I've mentioned earlier in our conversation uh, in sales. Uh, rentals seem to be booming, but, but sales have slowed down a little bit. Are you seeing that this summer out east? Yeah, it started probably about for for us at least about two months ago, mm-hmm. where, you know, earlier in the year there were just crazy bidding wars and it was just going going you know, everything was flying. And it did, it kinda came to a bit of a halt. Um I don't know what that's a function of. I mean I know this time of year for us at least where the kids are getting out of school and people are moving into their rentals, it becomes a little slower. And to be honest, July and August we have a fair amount of business, but really people are buying in the spring and in the fall. Um, so, yeah, but we have seen a, a decent slowdown. We're on track for the same thing we did last year, which was the best year ever, but with less transactions. So, How, you know, we're well, seeing less less numbers in terms of volume. It's interesting. So, obviously, that, that translates to higher prices, less transactions, but doing right. about the same amount of business. Um, so your team covers what all of the the South Fork pretty much you know all the Hamptons pretty uh, much all the of- South Fork. I mean, I've done a deal in Shelter Island and a couple in Southampton, um, mm-hmm. but you know, really, we do everything. But the focal the focal point is let's say from Bridgehampton to Montauk. We don't do quite as much Southampton or Shelter Island, but we certainly cover them. And I live in Sag Harbor, so I know Shelter Island well. I yeah and and Montauk for example as you brought it up Montauk seems to be also uh on fire I remember the days yeah. when people used to say no I'm not interested in Montauk it's pretty out there but you know what it's an, it's another 40 minutes away you know from know. The East Hamptons and it's too far this and that now all of a sudden every time I open up something I'm reading about a property that's selling for astronomical prices in in Montauk yeah. Beautiful place. Let's talk about the rental market. You know, it seems to be on fire again after many years of dragging its heels. I have friends who, you know, who've tried to rent their houses and, and whatever else, and sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes not, you know, to the extent that the price that they want. All of a sudden, you know, just like the sales market, probably even more so, the rental market um, seems to be hot. What's, what's that about? I think it was a big function of just being an awful winter, <laughs> honestly. I mean, people <laughs> had such an awful winter that I think by the time the sun finally, 
came over the horizon and it warmed up above 60 people, you know, sort of flocked to rentals. Um, more, more I'm seeing the higher-end rentals being hot. Mm-hmm. Um, run-of-the-mill rentals, I'm not seeing quite as much activity. So, but, but the higher-end rentals have, have gone pretty crazy. Yeah, I think there's something to be said about the winter that we just all came off of. I mean, it was probably one of the, the coldest and worst that I could remember in, in many years. And it actually propelled me to rent a summer house this year. Unfortunately, not out east, but up in the country here, upstate New York. And uh, I think it was for probably the same reason, you know, just to yeah. spread out and enjoy the summer and, and get prepared for yet another winter coming. Right. Latest news. Exactly. Latest news, some Hamptons homeowners are ruffling feathers by renting their properties through websites such as Airbnb, and we're going to talk about that with my panel later, and HomeAway, you know, are they an uncommon practice until recently. Why are people now out east discovering these two websites or several websites and enabling them to do this on their own? And how is it affecting the broker community? Well, it's not really affecting the brokerage community the way you think it might. So, in the last, let's say, three or four years, we've seen a trend of, actually maybe just the last two or three years, a trend of people shortening the time that they're here. Um, not everybody, but a, a, a large chunk of people saying, you know what, I'm going to go out for a week or I'm going to go out for two weeks. And those websites really cater to that for a number of reasons. One, brokers, there's a town ordinance that we're really not supposed to do a rental that's less than two, two weeks or less because they don't want they don't want homeowners competing with the hotels, motels, etc. So they, they put that in many years ago. So that's one reason. The second reason, honestly, a lot of brokers, when you get a request for a one-week rental, it's a lot of work. And oftentimes you'll actually refer them to those sites because the amount of work it takes to do a one-week rental is mm-hmm. astronomical. And mm-hmm. most brokers just don't have time for that kind of thing. So b- because of this short-term, you know, the interest in the short-term rentals, these sites are really good at that. You know, the owner uploads their own information. They, they don't have to pay the 10% commission, you know, et cetera. The way it's hurt the brokers is that any of their returning renters who have decided, you know, I'm not going to do July and August this year. I'm going to do two weeks. That's where it really hurts the brokers. Right. Because of the people decreasing their time, not so much the websites taking away. Because, you know, if someone wants a full-season rental, they're going to a broker, like 90% of the time. Right. Right. Those, sites yeah, are, they, don't, those sites cater to short-term, even like one and two-night, which you know a broker would get in big trouble if they did a two-night rental. Yeah, and I mean it's pretty similar here. I think the biggest controversy here in Manhattan or in New York City with these websites is the, the time element, the short-term, because buildings here don't want you know six months or less, and some buildings over right. one year or less. So right. these sites are wreaking havoc in condominium buildings, for example, where people buy them. And then just turn around and put them on websites and you have transient people in and out. It's, it's getting a little crazy here and I can't wait to see how it's all going to um, finalize. You know, here in New York, we have an influx of foreign buyers. You know, the Chinese, you know, this past spring have been very, very active in purchasing real estate. Do you see a lot of foreign buyers in the Hamptons? And if so, where do they come from? I mean, I remember years past, they used to come from the UK for the most part, but are they still out there? the foreign buyer in the Hamptons? Yeah, they are. The, the, the major contingency I've seen is from the U.K. as well. But I've also had a fair amount of Dutch and actually a few Swedish buyers yeah. in the mm-hmm. past couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, we really, at least, I haven't seen uh, the Asian buyers. 
Um, I think and I spoke to a broker in the city who deals a lot with the Chinese investors, and he said, you know, it's just it's an unknown to them, and New York is a known entity, and for them to invest in New York is wiser for them. So yeah, I mean, I would say that the UK is the majority of our foreign buyers. Let me ask you this: What is the most popular? People ask me this all the time. I think I have the answer, but what is the most popular Hampton uh, when people mm. are out there searching around? I mean, you for know, example, East Hampton and South on, Hampton have always had right. a rivalry, but I don't know who should win that, you know, that little tug of war. But what's the, what's the most popular Hampton? It changes from year to year. It changes from price point to price point. Um, you know, Montauk and Sag Harbor have recently kind of come into vogue in the last few years. Sagaponic, as you know, you know, always attracts the big, big money. Um, but in terms of Southampton versus East Hampton, it's sort of funny because usually you don't have too much cross-connection between the two. The only reason you might ever have cross-connection is if a, a buyer in East Hampton says, you know what, I want to be 25 minutes closer to the city. I'm going to look in Southampton instead. But there is a funny little thing between the brokers and how you know the brokers in East Hampton feel like East Hampton's better and vice versa. And we kind of poke fun at each other. But you know, it changes every year. It really does. And I'll be curious to see, you know, what this summer, you know, what the best area is this summer in terms of actual sales, you know. But I've always found East Hampton to be a great spot. And the reason I work in East is I feel like it's sort of in the middle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just a good crowd in East Hampton. There's beautiful beaches. And, you know, you're sort of 15 minutes to Sag Harbor, 20 minutes to Montauk, 20 minutes to Southampton. That, that's, that's where I was going to go, East Hampton, for me. But, um, again, you know, you have much more <clears throat> interaction out there. So what do you – what's the – we have about uh, two minutes left. What is your prediction for the future in the Hamptons? I mean, we've seen good and bad. We've seen this, you know, come out of a financial crisis that took years to, to turn around. Seems to be, you know, full steam ahead these days. What's your prediction prediction for the next year or two, three? You know, the Hamptons has always been and will remain, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful places, especially within 100 miles of Manhattan. So I think it's just going to continue to increase at a somewhat slow rate. I don't see any precipitous jumps up or down. Um, So I think it'll continue to get stronger, you know, but not at the 10 and 20% we used to see where the prices are just going crazy. I think the sellers have all learned that it's just, they need to be reasonable if they want to sell now. And so I think it's just going to continue a, a gentle upward slope. And what's next for Brian Midlam? I mean, I know you for probably close to the 10 years that you're, you're selling out there, and I've seen hey. you know, pretty much from the beginning to where you are today. Huge success. What's next for Brian? Um, you know, right now, as you know, I have uh, five-month-old twins, so I've been yeah. focusing a lot of my time and energy there. Um, but last year I did my first uh, renovation uh, flip project, which I really enjoyed. I had wanted to go to school to be an architect and just didn't want to go to school for that long. So I designed my first project, which I thought was great. So I think doing a couple more projects throughout the next couple years, and um, we're, we're sort of in improving our business now. I've brought on a couple people onto my team and just continuing to, to get better and grow all the time. And I think that that's, you know, what's most important for our clients and customers for us to be consistently informed. Brian, you certainly seem to have found the, the secret to success and in the most wonderful place in the world, I call it paradise out east. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, hopefully you'll come back again and give us an update 
uh, later in the summer. But thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Bye-bye. Bye, Vince. We'll be, we'll be right back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back, and we just finished talking to Brian Midlam from Corcoran out east in the Hamptons, and we got a pretty good update on what that marketplace is all about. Here in New York, I'm talking right now to my panel, Niall Lundgren, president of his own firm, Dalian Realty, Rachel Altshuler from Douglas Elliman, and Perul Brombat from CORE. Hello, everybody. Hi. Good morning. So you guys get a chance to listen to some of that interview. What are your thoughts, quick thoughts, on properties out east in the Hamptons? Your perspective. I, I actually was thinking about going out to the North Fork, um, we have some other things going on, but I think our two- to five-year plan is to head out to the North Fork. I love it there so much. And I'm actually taking a friend uh, for her birthday out to Greenport in East Marion. So I enjoyed listening to Brian. I've met Brian. He's great. And um, I'm out in East Hampton and Sag Harbor probably once every few months. Love it out there. It's a beautiful place out there. So we, you know, the, the, the growing popularity of home-sharing websites like Airbnb is raising concerns about the impact of short-term rentals on the long-term rental housing market here in Manhattan and, well, actually in New York City. Airbnb was founded in 2007 by Brian Chesky and his roommate, who by his own admission was broke and unemployed, struggling to pay the rent on his San Francisco apartment. A thought occurred to them that what if they could rent some of their apartment space to a few people in town for an event or just to stay and make some money? This grew into a booming business, uh, and it's now called the the sharing economy. So, guys, what you know? What is this site Airbnb? What is it about? Well, I think Air- Airbnb is a place where you know tenants, regardless of whether they're in New York City or anywhere you know in the world, I believe it's a global site in like 192 countries. Um, I, I think they, they just basically the owners they they rent out their their space, um, whether they're living in the space and they have an extra bedroom that they're renting out, or if they're leaving for vacation, they'll rent out their home for a, a short time and have somebody else come in, and then they earn or collect rent on that short-term stay. 
But how is this how is this affecting the traditional longer term rental environment here or is it? I mean, Brian said that, you know, pretty much out east that, you know, the short term couple week didn't necessarily interfere with or interrupt the longer term rentals. But, you know, on some level, isn't it really here in Manhattan? I mean, how many times have you heard recently that, you know, we're selling condominiums to to investors and they turn around and get themselves in trouble with the building because they never intend to move into it. They're just renting it by the day, the week, the month, the very short-term period. Are you seeing I, any I of that I think it's stuff? more of an issue in the city than it is in the Hamptons. I think for here in the city, it's becoming a legal matter. Uh, the boards are cracking down and really watching Airbnb, the website, and then going after owners who have renters that are doing that, which is illegal according to their sublease. Mm-hmm. So what we're fi- well, I'm finding that a lot of my clients are now finding out that their tenants are profiting from doing the Airbnb. And so they're either being evicted or they're being warned. And a lot of people don't realize that there are consequences, that, it, that what they're doing is illegal. So I think it's still a new issue in the city, and a lot of people are still sort of confused as to what is allowed and what isn't allowed. So what's the real controversy then about? Is it about the fact that people are doing something that is being construed as illegal or breaking house rules or just not paying attention to you know the, the, the real reason why they, they bought this apartment and it was to, supposed to be for an investment for a longer term? Or is it all of the above? Because – I had a situation about a year ago where someone bought an apartment from me and then, uh, again, just immediately turned around and started Airbnb-ing it and got in all kinds of trouble with the condo and almost got kicked out and then brought a lawsuit against the building. It seems like it's the type of issue where um, um, it was – in. to to begin with, the reason why this was ever made into a legal matter uh, in the first place was um, was – well, I think twofold. One is that the hotel industry is fairly regulated, and you know, um, and I think that that is necessary in order to make sure that hotels live up to certain standards. Um, so when people are renting Airbnbs first and foremost, or private homes is on Airbnb first and foremost, it's really tough to regulate the quality or you know what sort of thing happens and goes down as far as the property is concerned. Secondly, it's also, I think, to just protect a specific economy, which is, I think, the intention was to protect the hotel industry from competition of, uh, from homeowners. Um, so I think that this is becoming more of an issue for the hotel industry in a lot of ways than I would think for us as brokers, especially on the renter side. So, yes, you know, we might be losing some owners, to renting apartments on their own on Airbnb. However, um, as far as renters are concerned, I don't think it, it affects us as much because the people who are renting these spaces, like Brian was saying, um, are the people who are going for very short-term rentals that we as brokers don't really have time to engage in in the first place. Yeah, but, you know, what's interesting to me is, you know, the company is valued at $10 billion and and has rental listings in 192 countries. You know, so I say, how does this happen? I mean, and where would, the where would you know, most of their concentration be? Is it in the Midwest? Is it in cities like New York where there are a lot of condos and a lot of investors? I mean, $10 billion in a very short period of time 
is a lot of money. And how then do you regulate or how can we potentially regulate, you know, this kind of activity to where it doesn't happen uh, to the extent where, you know, it, it, it just shatters the traditional rental market. And by the way, what about, you know, people who live next door? You know, one of the, the reasons that my customer got caught over in a condo bu- building in Midtown West is because the neighbor next door kept saying, well, you know, what's going on in this apartment next door here? People are coming and going and coming and going with sheets and towels and, and, and suitcases, almost like on a weekly basis. This isn't a hotel. How do we, how can we, I, a general question to all of you, how can we regulate this better? How can we potentially stop this from continuing? Well, I think first, Vince, and the fact that, you know, it's worth $10 billion to answer one of your earlier questions, I think, you know, they must be doing something right if they're in 192 countries and it's worth $10 billion, um, so so quickly after inception. So th- there seems to be a demand for it. I think it becomes problematic when we're talking about New York City specifically. I think, you know, a couple of years ago, I believe it was 2010, there was, um, right before that, there was a lot of these short-term stay-type websites, like uh, short-term illegal hotels is what um, they were calling them. And right. they, the city put in, like, a regulation so that, you know, it prohibits rentals for fewer than 30 days. So I think they put that law in in 2010. Airbnb has kind of since blown up, and that directly is a conflict with that law. Um, so that that's problematic. I mean, just that one factor. And then adding in the additional factor of, you know, look, there's people, random people living next door to you who you don't know could be from different countries. You have no idea there's been no credit or background check on these people. And that is problematic. And I see um, what you're saying and how a, a condominium could be, you know, very, you know, I guess, ticked off about that. And then you ask about how to regulate that. And I think it becomes, you know, a little bit tricky. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of uh, back and forth. Um, between you know Airbnb, I mean, I see I see Airbnb slogans in the subway all the time. I think they're even looking to sponsor you know the New York City Marathon. So I mean, they're yeah. making a push on their end, and then the city and, and the state are making a push back on their end. So I'm, it's going to be it's going to be tricky. I, I don't know if anyone really has the answer right now, but I think you know um, there is a demand for it. It's just about how you know. Are there new regulations? Are there is there a structure in place that the that the city comes to agree on? I'm not I'm not entirely sure, but you know this this is something that will be um, staying here in the future that will that will come up over and over again. Well, they recently yeah. won a legal standoff uh, Tuesday, I think, when a, a state judge ruled the company did not have to give up customer records as part of the investigation by the New York Attorney General. And and and. You know, uh, now you're right. You know, they're doing things like trying to sponsor the marathon, you know, to get into the good graces of Manhattanites. And I get it. You know, I, I see what they're trying to do, you know, win everybody's uh, approval. But that's not going to help, you know, from State Guidelines. Perul, I'm sorry, you want to say something? Oh, no, I was just going to say, um, no, I actually kind of forgot what I was going to say. Uh, but I think I was going to say something along the lines of what Niles had said, Niall had said um, uh, which is uh, about regulation. I think that uh that in fact um the airbnb the fact that there's such a high demand um to me means that as much as we may like it or not um i believe that the right idea here would be to come up with regulation that somehow works and and allows some sort of a happy medium because really i think um i mean i'd be personally be really interested to see uh how many people are renting rooms in their own homes versus actually renting whole apartments. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that would be just, I'm just curious. I have no idea what the number is. 
um, but especially people who are renting a room in their homes, I think that there is a, an upsurge of people wanting to do that in the city because prices are so high. I mean, you know, younger people who are moving into the city, I mean, I was just over at a, at a friend's place, who two, two friends who just graduated from Harvard Business School, and uh, they found a place in Soho that is for a two-bedroom, three-bathroom walk-up apartment on the fourth floor, fully renovated, but still was $9,000. I mean, for a two-bedroom that was not even potentially convertible, for it to be $9,000 for people who are just graduating out of school with student loans is just a lot of money. And um, for situations like those, I think that people are sort of renting place home, uh, uh, rooms in their homes to sort of be able to mitigate the cost of being able to live here. So I think that there's a broader conversation here, and it's not just about the current law and whether that law is fair or not. Because, look, as a broker, obviously, I don't love the idea of Airbnb. However, I think that if I'm not thinking about it from a brokerage point of view and just looking at what is fair for people to do with their own homes, um, I don't know. I feel like people should have the right to open it up and have paid guests if that's something they would like to do. All right, guys. Yeah, listen, another, we have to take another factor that's really important that's specific to New York City is the financial uh, aspect of taking money away from the managing agents and from the co-ops and condos. So when somebody goes uh, properly goes through the system of renting out their apartment, there are fees that are paid by the tenant, by the shareholder or owner. And when somebody is circumventing that, they are taking money, so to speak, out of the reserve. And it's really not fair to the people that are following the protocol. Um, that's a really big concern that's specific to New York City. All right, let's hold it right there. We'll be back after these messages. You are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay with us, please. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America. 
at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back with my store panel of agents now, Rachel and Perul, and we were just talking about the growing popularity <clears throat> excuse me, of home-sharing websites like Airbnb, but they are raising concerns throughout many communities, especially here in New York City, because uh, the short-term rental uh, component of this website or sites like this is not really allowed in most buildings. So, guys, you know, some final thoughts on the whole uh, Airbnb controversy, and I guess it's going to be heating up even more so over the next couple of weeks as they fight it out in court. And let's just see where it all ends. But, uh, Rachel, I think you wanted to say something about fees with condo boards and how it all relates to this short-term rental. Um, just going off of what I, I had said before and and what's specific to New York City, the the fees that are normally paid to the managing agent that run the building and the shareholders usually paying what's called a sublet fee. So you have application fees and processing fees and credit fees and move-in fees. And these can sometimes run from all the way from 500 to 2000 and upwards for the sublet fee for the shareholders. And so when we're talking about somebody going to Airbnb and circumventing that entire process, as a shareholder, I would be very, very frustrated and angry, along with the other issue of security and privacy, when you realize that people are coming in and out on a day-to-day or weekly basis, um, there are many issues, I think, that are a concern for people, a legitimate concern for people in the city. Well, Vince, you know, and Rachel, I would agree with you, especially on co-ops. I feel like if somebody purchases in a co-op, um, they're purchasing a specific lifestyle, which is one where there aren't those sorts of sublets ongoing. I feel, about, however, though, that a condo, um, is a different sort of purchase altogether. And when we purchase in condos, we know that um, that there are going to be renters, there are going to be investors, et cetera. Um, that I feel that with the doorman building, et cetera, um, as far as safety is concerned, maybe it can be regulated in some way. I mean, my point of view is just that, um, first and foremost, um, it just seems to me that uh, this conversa- conversation is here to stay. Um, given it is there is such a high demand and maybe changing with the times versus sort of having more of a traditional notion on, on the whole conversation may be a good thing. And I don't know, and I, I guess maybe, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of, you know, supporting the small guy in this conversation that, uh, you know, when it comes to managing agents and fees, I think that that's a whole separate issue altogether where, um, you know, I, I mean, I don't understand why, applying for a rental in a condominium would cost five, six hundred and fifty, eight hundred and fifty dollars as an application fee. That is separate for for our listen, listeners out there from the credit check fee. It is separate from the move in deposit and move in fees. Um, to basically process in a rental application. And nowadays these rental applications have like, you know, letters of recommendation and W two forms, it's almost as if somebody's applying to a co op for a purchase. And I feel that um, these uh, these management companies are sort of making the process that vigorous to justify this big ticket number. And it really is. I mean, if you think about the people who are fighting Airbnb, it is the larger business. It is the hoteliers who are very much against this whole notion because it affects their business. 
Um, and it's not really taking into account the voice of the person who is the private homeowner who is trying to mitigate their own personal costs. I, I think, too, just jumping off the back of both of you guys, who spoke mm-hmm. about condos and co-ops. There's another aspect here, which is, you know, rental buildings where there's rent-stabilized tenants. You know, it's problematic for landlords when they see stabilized tenants who, for example, have been in the building for a number of years and they're paying $1,500 in rent to the landlord, but then they're, you know, they're moving into a more expensive apartment and they're renting that stabilized apartment out for $250 a night, you know, they're, which is probably, you know, 7500 for 30 days. And they're and they're profiting six six grand a month, and then landlords are saying, "Hey, well, there's rent stabilization laws that require you or us to to deal with the fact that you're paying a lower rent. Now you're turning around and using Airbnb as a method of profit. So you're profiting off of something that um, that we are giving you essentially, and uh, that is problematic, you know, because the landlords have to pay for oil and gas and you know real estate taxes, and then stabilized tenants are taking advantage of the of the system in a sense. So there's a number of different aspects, whether condos or co-ops or even rental buildings that I think, um, you know, Airbnb is going to have to contend with as it, you know, really grows in New York City. I agree. Let's move on to landmarking. So historic neighborhoods could make it uh, more difficult for Mayor de Blasio to fulfill his ambitious uh, affordable housing goals, a new study by the real estate industry found. Of 35,000 affordable housing units built citywide between 2003 and 2012, only a hundred were landmarked were within landmark districts, according to the Real Estate Board of New York. All uh, and all but five of the affordable uh, units uh, constructed in landmark districts were part of one heavily subsidized project in the Bronx. The revenue report says landmarking can create unforeseen barriers on development. Higher design and construction standards required by Landmarks Preservation Commission, as well as the length of review process, add cost to developing housing within a historic district. The study says. The Landmarks Preservation Commission takes into account the architecture and history of a neighborhood when making decisions about giving a building landmark status. Rebney has long argued that the city overuses landmarking, especially in Manhattan, where 28% of the island is landmarked or considered an historic district. Now, you know, listen, we can talk about this for a very long period of time, but just quickly, and especially those of us who work with developers looking for properties to, you know, either throw down and rebuild or, you know, convert, whatever. Landmarking is an issue. What, you know, what in your perception uh, is, is the actual problem here, guys? I, I mean, I work with developers. And, you know, when they're looking to buy, whether it's a development site or reposition, you know, a building in a landmark district, you know, the first thing they always think about is, ah, landmarks, you know, it's, More than anything, it's just like an extra layer of of red tape in a city that's already rife with red tape. I don't know if that makes sense, but it it can add additional costs. I mean, time... Time, just the, just the time that it takes a developer to get, you know, um, the facade through a landmarks could take months. And then if they're carrying a big mortgage, um, you know, for the parcel of, of property that they just purchased, you know, that could be, you know, the fact, that could be the fact of whether they're making a profit or breaking even. And if they're breaking even, is it even worth doing? So it, it is problematic for, for developers. Yeah, I was just recently working with a townhouse, uh, a smaller developer who who buys and converts townhouses. And, you know, we had to wait, I would say, probably four to five months for approval on the original staircase that was removed. (laughs) 
in front of the building. I mean, you know, when everybody was carrying on about the delay and I kept thinking, well, you know, I, I agree. What, what, what's the, the bottleneck here? And, you know, obviously time to market is everything and obviously a four or five month um, delay backs everybody up and costs, you know, the developer even more money. How, so, you know, my question is how, how will the city, I guess, eventually settle these landmark issues? I mean, will it continue or do you think that people like Rebney, Real Estate Board of New York, can make changes here where they feel they are necessary? Well, Vince, I think that uh, you sort of hit the nail on the head. I think the problem isn't perhaps so much should we have historical landmarked buildings, should we have less of them, et cetera. I believe the problem is truly the process. And like most you know, lobbyist groups and issues that become so black and white in our world, um, I feel that there's sort of two extreme sides getting so I, I believe that sort of developers would, would love it. I mean, especially some of the larger ones um, would love to just do away with so much of landmarking just because of the profitability, profitability involved. However, because they are so strong and, you know, have so much money backing them, the preservation societies swing on the opposite side of the pendulum and sort of try to fight tooth and nail for, you know, just so many properties um, and, and create so much regulation and create so much roadblocks, which they un- unfortunately feel that it's necessary for them to do in order to save some of these gorgeous buildings and gorgeous sites that we really should be preserving, um, that it's become this very kind of tug-of-war sort of battle instead of people shaking hands and sort of having a common goal in the middle. And I think that the only way that that can be resolved is with better regulation. I, I agree. And, you know, just like the Airbnb controversy, um, <clears throat> let's see how this gets settled or where it gets settled because, you know, um, regulation is needed. And I think if it's done properly, uh, we'll have a better, uh, a better, you know, example of what, you know, he- here's the other thing too. I sometimes think, why are we picking a particular building or street or location to be landmarked? I mean, we certainly can't landmark everything. But then when you see a statistic like 28% of Manhattan is landmarked, you know, I just sit back and think, well, why? You know, and some of these landmark areas or landmark buildings, in my opinion, and this is just Vince Rocco's opinion, are not so special. It's like, okay, they're just okay. Um, so I think well, we also, need- Vince, the other issue is, is that some of the brownstone streets specifically that are landmarks, the mm-hmm. interesting issue is, is that brownstones, um, some of these brownstones, at least like a huge surgeons of them, were in the late 1800s. And at that time, um, brownstones were really, or I would say mid-1800s mid and then also late. Um, and a lot of them were really built to last about 30, 35 years. Brownstone itself is a really porous material. And so, really, I think one of the things that needs to be taken account when something is landmark is also the, the actual structural soundness of what it is that we're landmarking in the first place. I agree. And guys, we're running out of time. So I just wanted to close with saying you can't talk about everything Hamptons without mentioning a very popular staple, the Hamptons Jitney is a for-profit bus company based in Southampton, New York, operating three primary routes from the east uh, end of Long Island, the Hamptons, and the North Fork to New York City. The Hamptons Jitney was founded in 1974 with by a single uh, van, and the owner was James Davidson, a former advertising art director who lived in the Hamptons and wanted to establish a convenient means for traveling uh, to and from the Hamptons, especially for those without a driver's license. 
Initially, the company used vans instead of buses, operating on the theory of a shared taxi service among the little communities of the Hamptons. The founders saw a need for a new transit option for people traveling between New York City and out east, and it's become the staple of everything Hamptons today. Next week on our show, reality TV is a genre of television programming that documents unscripted situations and actual occurrences. Jill Zarin is a reality TV star, author, clothing, and jewelry designer, and more. We will discuss Jill's four years on The Real Housewives of New York and her upcoming guest appearance on ABC TV's Celebrity Wife Swap. And what is next for this popular TV personality? Don't miss it. Until next time, thank you for joining me, and I look forward to being with you next Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, live on the Variety Channel here on the Voice America Network. You can always catch the show later in the day or anytime on our or website, voiceamerica.com. Thanks, everybody, and have a great week. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.